as firefighters, police officers, and citizens who volunteered their efforts, recovered bodies, and lowered them to the ground from the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building. People below were placing those bodies into caskets and loading them onto wagons for transport. The effects of the Shirtwaist Factory fire were heavy on all involved. Even the most hardened responders were overcome by emotion and grief. Crews were rotated out to give them time to temporarily recover. Almost immediately after the fire, there were calls from the public for changes to life safety issues in manufacturing plants. Many of these changes were adopted and protect us even today. I'm Jeff Moss. I'm Tyler J. Thomas. And I'm Tim Coleman. Together, we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is the Three Tumblers. Now, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, Part 3, Out of Fashion, Into Compliance. Although so many had died in the fire, the factory owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, had managed to save themselves along with several family members by crawling across a ladder that had been lowered by people at the neighboring New York University building. A number of other workers from the 10th floor also managed to escape this way as well. While bodies were still being brought out and carted away, cries from the public went up demanding answers and accountability. Within a week of the fire, even before all the victims had been buried, a meeting was held to discuss unsafe working conditions and how new legislation could prevent such a tragedy from happening again. On June 30, 1911, the Factory Investigating Commission was established by the state legislature. It consisted of state senators, assemblymen, and citizens alike. The primary function of the commission was to investigate current manufacturing facilities and make recommendations for new laws that would protect the workers. Although the commission had several other mandates, its primary duty was to inquire about, quote, hazards to life because of fire, unquote. This included fire prevention, drills, and fire escapes and exits. You know, we hear today so many times after major incidents, people calling for, you know, answers and accountability and everything. This is an example where that was followed through on pretty quickly. I mean, within just days of the fire, actually, there were uh, public statements from officials that night. Like the fire happened at 4 p.m. on a Saturday by 10, 11, you know, midnight that night, people were demanding answers. Yeah. And I think nowadays, like they have, um, 
accident investigations and fire investigation units where, you know, they pretty quickly go and, and try to figure out exactly what happened as quick as possible and, you know, make it so it doesn't happen again, as well as determining why it happened, uh, which I think, you know, technology is just a little bit better than it was back then. Uh, so I think that plays a part. And, you know, having Fire Prevention Bureau with every every city, um, you know, the, the issues that we were dealing with with the restaurant next to us, not having a fire suppression and ventilation, you know, that's a big problem. And they gave them time to fix it. They didn't fix it. So eventually they closed them down for till they got it fixed. And, you know, uh, but that's really important. So, um, you know, know the AHJ, you know, obviously it's important. Um, you, know, you can get business from them when they break somebody's door down, but also that, you know, they're there to help as a, you know, you're a business or a resident. Um, you know, if, like I said before, if something's not right, speak up. And a lot of this stuff is automatic by law, these sorts of investigations. I mean, think about any time an airplane crash happens, even if there's no loss of life, the NTSB gets involved and investigates it. And it's not the only example. There's a lot of other government agencies that when something under their purview happens, an investigation is automatically triggered. They follow up on it, figure out what went wrong, what we can learn from it, how to fix it. So fortunately, we're doing a lot better today than back then. Even though they acted so quickly back then, I mean, we're doing a lot more now than we did then. Um, Also, the commission, this commission... We'll talk about the main focus of hazards because of fire, Uh, but just so our listeners know, they also investigated things like sanitation, Uh, sanitation and uh, other things like working hours, um, crowding, availability to food and breaks, and a lot of other stuff that doesn't really have to do with what our focus is, which is being on door hardware um but they they did a lot more than just door hardware and as exits and fire hazards and i was curious too when we were researching this episode i know this is a government sort of mandated investigation but i wanted to see if there's ever been examples of private industries private companies sort of sponsoring these sorts of investigations or following through with them And believe it or not, I was able to find one about 10 years ago uh, in Bangladesh, of all places. The two apparel conglomerates there, which represented brands like Target and Walmart, got together with the trade unions and inspected over 1,700 factories after one of the factories collapsed and killed about 1,100 people. And they completed that investigation in about a year and found over 88,000 life safety code violations. And ironically enough, some of the big things that they found are what we're discussing right now, namely overcrowded, overloaded working floors and unsafe storage of combustible material. Because in the case in Bangladesh, these were apparel factories, basically what we're talking about right now. And even 100 years later, people are still guilty of the violations that contributed to this fire.
The Factory Investigation Commission found a number of issues plaguing the factories in New York City. Amongst these were the fact that a number of buildings labeled as fireproof were in fact not only not fireproof, their construction and design could actually help fires accelerate and spread. Most doors were made of wood and opened inwards. Stairwells were also open and had no doors preventing smoke and flame from moving up through the building. Also lacking were clear passageways from work areas to the stairs and fire escape. The doors were too narrow and because they swung inward, they were nearly impossible to open during the rush of a panicked crowd. At the time of the fire, New York State Labor Law Article 6, Section 80 stated, quote, All doors leading in or to any such factory shall be constructed as to open outwardly where practicable, and shall not be locked, bolted, or fastened during work hours. Isaac Harris and Max Blank were indicted on charges of manslaughter, and their trial began on December 4th of 1911. During their trial, a witness for the defense said that there was a key tied to the lock with a piece of string, and she was able to use that to unlock the door and escape. However, the prosecution claimed that the witness was lying. I'm assuming that you know, this is the similar defense like when we tell people that double cylinder deadbolts are bad and they say, well, I have a key there, it's fine. Um, obviously, this witness survived, so somehow she was able to get out. I'm not sure how they determined that they were lying or not. Um, obviously, you know, we weren't there. So it, it's definitely, you know, I would say that the owners of the plant were certainly liable for some of the conditions and the no breaks and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't say for sure, but you know, all of these things by themselves maybe weren't horrible, but when they put them together, like with the Collinwood School Fire, it's the perfect storm. Well, and not only that, but like you said, again, we have inward swinging doors, which we've seen before. Um, and then also the actual floor plan layout of the eighth and ninth floors where actual production was taking place. You had rows and rows and rows of tables with the sewing machines on there. And if you can imagine being in, say, the most crowded school cafeteria ever, where you've got you know seats back to back and then reduce that room between seats by say half you're going to get to what we had here a triangle so not only do you have locked inward swinging doors you have people crowded upon you know person upon person and you really don't have a lot of room to get out in an emergency. I mean, and then also, let's face it, you're doing the exact same thing that our, like you said, Jeff, that our residential customers are doing today by having a key tied to a string. If that was, in fact, the case, you have the key tied to a string at the lock. I mean, come on now, really? 
I just can't get over that code, section 80, where it says, shall be constructed to open outwardly where practical. Who, who determines that? Or what determines if it's unpractical? So I, I can't believe it would be left that open-ended. Uh, a, lot, a lot of codes today are more definitive with their language, with their verbiage. Uh, there are examples like this, but I just, that's just so open to interpretation. Well, and actually we're getting ready to hear about that. And a lot of these interpretations of the codes were left up to a discussion between the building inspector and the architect. So you have a discussion between them and that's how they determined uh, basically how these things should work. And we, we still see some of that today, especially with construction projects. Uh, you know, like we've said in previous episodes, even in season one, the architect, the contractor are in constant communication with the HJ fire marshals, whatever they may be, depending on the jurisdiction. So there is always talk, you know, hey, uh, something changed or the client wants this or we ran into this. Can we do this in lieu of what we originally planned? And either it's allowed or they figure out something that'll work for both of them. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look through specs and codes, I mean, they're pretty clear. Shall not, shall do this, must be installed in a workmanlike manner. I mean, it's, most of the codes are not open-ended like that, pun intended, on the door stuff. Yeah, I, and like Tyler was saying, you do see cooperation between architects and contractors and the AHJs, but also when it comes down to it, code is code. And one thing that I learned as a cop is when the law says shall, that means you have to. Actually, not to keep this going, but Tim, you can put this in wherever you want. We recently had a fire in Atlanta at a large apartment building. And fortunately, nobody died, but the whole building's been ruined. I mean, hundreds of units in it. And immediately, the uh, fire marshal for the state of Georgia, which covers pretty much the whole state of Georgia, they have jurisdiction over the entire state. They started reviewing life safety and fire codes. Specifically, since this fire started on the roof, they want to look at possible ways to uh, add fire suppression to roofs roofs going forward and i believe jeff you mentioned before that a synagogue in town caught fire due to an electrical spark on a roof that is the synagogue that i grew up going to there was a i think it was from an air handler or an electrical junction box on the roof and it spread pretty quickly and did i mean there was smoke damage but there was more damage from them putting out the fire than it was anything else Well, and back in May, in Charlotte, uh, May 18th of this year, 2023, there was an apartment complex in the south end of Charlotte, and uh, the a fire broke out, and it was a massive fire. It shut down traffic for miles and miles. It made national news, and unfortunately, two workers were killed. Uh, but within 24 hours, you had 
not only the local fire marshal and fire investigators, but you also had state officials. You had state OSHA officers. You had uh, national OSHA officers on the site. So, yes, this rollout and investigation is something that we see a lot of today, and it's for good reason. In 1911, when the Ash Building was under construction, the designs of fire escapes were left to the inspectors and the architects. The inspector charged with the Ash Building had told the architect that the end of the fire escape needed to end with something more substantial than over a basement skylight. Trial records showed that the architect had agreed to build an additional balcony and to route the escape to the ground. However, this was never done, and on the day of the fire, that fire escape collapsed and killed or injured many women who were fleeing for their lives. On October 10, 1911, the Factory Investigation Commission heard testimony from retired fire chief Edward Croker in regards to the building conditions of factories like the Triangle Shirtwaist. He testified that most of the fire escapes were completely inadequate and businesses often relied on elevators as means of egress in their fire escape plans. Labor Department Inspector G.I. Harmon also testified that day saying that during his last inspection of the Ash Building, he found the doors of the work areas all swung inward and had locks on them. Although he did not encounter any doors that were actually locked, he did testify that there was plenty of time for them to be unlocked before he reached them. Another fact revealed by the Factory Investigating Commission was that two years prior to the fire, an insurance inspector recommended that the factory doors needed to be kept unlocked during the workday and that fire drills needed to be conducted. These recommendations were never heeded. So, I mean, I would think that that pretty much shows that the owners were negligent in a lot of things. Now, again, I am not a lawyer, but based on the research that you've done and the things that were found, I mean, that's pretty bad. <laughs> well, I mean, even today, if you have an insurance company who says, hey, we're not going to insure you unless if you do this, even though it's not per se illegal or against code, but your insurance company says, we want you to do this, you do it because losing that insurance coverage is just a huge liability. I'd like to know more, but I wonder what recommended meant in context. You know, for example, a lot of times when we're shopping around for insurance, especially business insurance or home insurance, they would want to say, you know, do you have an alarm on your home, home security system, something like that? It's not required, but it's recommended, and ultimately you get better rates for it. So I wonder if it was the inspector saying, you know, you really should be having this, or, you know, it's 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 going to protect you a little bit better down the road, but it's not required from us, it's not mandatory, but we think you should do it. Right, was that inspector just, you know, covering himself by saying this or not? Yeah, I wonder if this inspector was 
questioned by the commission and said to cover his butt, oh yeah, I told them they should be doing something about that. Or I wonder if they discovered, you know, a report uh, by this inspector where it said what we just discussed. So I don't know, maybe, didn't we run into this with Iroquois after the fact? Right, where the, uh, the architect and the city inspector uh, had a discussion about the fire escape, I believe. And uh, they had agreed to change something and then it was never changed. But after the fact, they said, yeah, you know, we told them about this. So I don't know. I, I don't want to be a naysayer, but I, I can see kind of why somebody would be motivated to say that after all these people die. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, and the sad thing is, is that these officials had noticed, you know, these deficiencies in this building. But at the time, they didn't have a way to really enforce those laws. Like there was no code enforcement officer back then. You couldn't uh, criminally or civilly pursue enforcement of these codes. So you couldn't find the owners of the building. You couldn't find the owners of the business. Uh, you could not write them a citation, you know, to appear in criminal court. Yeah, it seems like the only reprieve you had was when something went wrong and then you would charge them with a, you know, as in this case, manslaughter charges. The trial of Max Blank and Isaac Harris ended in an acquittal of all charges. Their defense attorneys argued that the witnesses for the prosecution had been coached on what to say. With the outcry that followed, prosecutors refiled the charges, but those were later dismissed on grounds of double jeopardy. Blank and Harris were back in business within a year of the fire, although in a different location. In 1914, they were found liable in a wrongful death civil lawsuit and a settlement was reached with the families of 23 of the victims. The payout averaged $75 per victim, or about $2,300 in today's money. The insurance company overpaid the factory owners by over $400 per victim, leaving Blank and Harris with money to spare. The Factory Investigating Commission reported its findings to the state legislature on February 15th, 1912, and continued to present proposed changes to state labor laws until 1915. Out of these laws came the creation of fire safety standards that applied to all jurisdictions in the state, where prior to that, each authority had their own individual requirements. Among the changes in laws were more strict requirements for factories, both new and existing, to have doors that were unlocked during working hours. Also regulated now were the materials used for building stairs and doors. Wood was seen as fuel for future disasters and was now forbidden. Instead, doors should be made of metal or other fire-resistant materials, and stairs should be concrete or metal. Elevators were forbidden as being a means of egress due to their chimney-like effect during large fires. Hallway and stairway widths were now to be regulated to a minimum width of 36 inches, and while outward swinging doors were already required, 
most builders simply chose not to comply with the rules. This was changed now, and the Department of Labor gained authority to legally enforce these regulations. Many national regulations followed suit with New York in the years after. President Roosevelt's New Deal legislation contained a number of life safety codes on the federal level. In 1913, the National Fire Protection Association created the Life Safety Code. While not a legally binding code in itself, it is carefully worded such that any legal jurisdiction can adopt it as law. This code defines that the means of egress is a continuous and unobstructed way of travel from any point in a building or structure to a public way consisting of the exit access, the exit, and the exit discharge. Thankfully, modern buildings have stayed with this code, and some local authorities have even further enhanced it to make exiting a building more accessible to all people. While there are some very specific exceptions to these codes, none would have applied at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. I just realized something there with Roosevelt's New Deal legislation. He was a state senator in New York for about two months before this happened. So he, if he wasn't involved in the commission, he was very aware of what happened because he was in the New York State Senate. So I wonder if that had something to do with, you know, his New Deal legislation, public works and all of that. I imagine that it would have. I didn't realize that either. Um, that's pretty interesting. You know, something else that I think at the time, this trial of Blank and Harris, I'm pretty sure that I, even though I didn't find it myself, I'm pretty sure that it would have been labeled the trial of the century. Uh, how many of those have we had in the 20th century and in the 21st century so far? Um, but could you imagine today just the the media spectacle and social media uh, outcry on this um, with those two, especially when they were acquitted of the criminal charges? I mean, that would just be such an outrage. We would see so much online and and probably in the streets too yeah i agree for sure i mean there would be definitely uh major problems and not to mention the fact that they went right back into business like a year later less than a year later and they had money to spare from the insurance company i mean that's just it it seems ridiculous but that's what happened yeah, and I'm sure that they came out ahead, too, with what they lost and was replaced by insurance, never mind the overpayment to the victim's compensation. So 400 per, and what was it, 23 or 25? That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a hefty amount of money for those days. It was 75, but still... Well, and, and $75 being just over $2,300 in today's money, I mean, that was quite a bit, like you said. Something else I'd like to point out that came out of this was that now, with the recommendations of the Factory Investigating Committee 
And the legislation that was passed is now we have actual enforceable codes, both criminally and civilly. And so now there is a way that local and state officials can make sure that buildings are in compliance with these regulations. Uh, Before it was, you know, just a, a, hey, you need to do this because this is what we say you need to do. And the architects and contractors were like, yeah, okay, we'll do it. And then they never would. Now, as a result of this, they can get fined. They can get shut down. They can have their licenses suspended. There is actual enforcement available to the authorities having jurisdiction officials. And we take that for granted now because that's all we've ever known. But back then, they didn't have it. So what a huge leap forward it was for them and safety for all at the time. And only just a a couple years after this. And that's pretty remarkable. One final thing that I would like to mention for our listeners who maybe aren't locksmiths or in the door hardware industry, uh, this is where those signs that you see in businesses saying this door must be unlocked during business hours. This is where that originated from. Uh, Basically, you have to have certain doors that are always unlocked when the business is opened uh, during its regular hours, whatever those hours may be. So when you find one of those doors and you try to go out of it and it's locked, then that business owner is liable for that door being locked. It's there for a reason, folks. But if there's nobody actually making sure that that door is supposed to be unlocked, you know, it's, it's, it's a, even if there's no, if there's nobody making sure that there's a sign that's supposed to be there, you know, if if the place has four doors and only one of them is used for entrance and exit, but the AHJ or whoever is allowing that, there's only one door but there's really three others that should have signs, but they're closed all the time. That's not, you know, that's not good either. Right. Or how many times have we walked into a convenience store, a gas station, and they have double storefront doors and one of them's locked or it has the newspaper rack in front of it or, you know, a display of candy bars right in front of it. And they keep that door locked so people won't knock that display over. Maybe they do it because they feel that it gives them some added security uh, to avoid people shoplifting or something. Um, It's not allowed. And somebody somewhere should say something. And, you know, is it on us? Like if we're traveling, if we go just to get a, a cold drink and a snack from a gas station and we see a door that's locked that should be unlocked, uh you're wearing a shirt advertising your place of business, then yes, you should. You really should say something. Uh, Even if it falls on deaf ears, you've done your part because you've said something. After only four and a half years in the United States, Sarah Brodsky and her sister Ida were killed in the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Jewish immigrants from Russia, they were overcome by smoke and flames. 
Sarah's fiance. Israel Brolalski identified her remains, including a watch and the engagement ring he had given her. They were set to be married five weeks after the fire. After their second business went under, not much is known about the rest of Isaac Harris's life. Max Blank eventually moved to Los Angeles and continued to work in sales until his death on July 10, 1942, at the age of 73. The Iron and Steel Ash Building still stands today. New York University began using the eighth floor for classrooms and a library in 1916. In 1929, Frederick Brown, a philanthropist and real estate mogul, bought the building and donated it to the university. It was renamed the Brown Building. Still owned by NYU today, it houses classrooms and research labs and has three plaques on the southeast corner commemorating the women and men who lost their lives in the fire. On October 11, 2023, the Triangle Fire Memorial was dedicated. The story of the tragedy is engraved in the stainless steel and stone memorial in the languages spoken by the victims, English, Italian, and Yiddish. In the early 1900s, a strange but fair businessman, an architect, and a hardware salesman stricken with survivor's guilt came together and created a product designed to prevent disasters like this from happening again. Their fight was not for money, but to prevent further tragedy. The work they did and the name they created lives on to this day. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3tumblers.com. Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a 3Tumblers production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.